We're so, I, I can't tell you how honored I am that you're here. And uh, I am talking today on a topic that I, I can tell you I'm very passionate about. I grew up in the racist South, so, you know, fully white, not knowing, not having a clue about what some of your experiences were. And because of a series of events that I'll talk to about today, you'll see how my perspective has changed a bit, and I'm still learning every day. So I would love to have further contact with you in your setting, what you're doing. I put my information on the board. I'd like to talk to you more personally because I'm learning every day. We're growing learning. Walter Pierce is on our staff in Melbourne, and Walter's getting ready to go. Wave your hand, Walter. He's getting ready to go to Chicago. And Walter is really, he and his wife both have helped us tremendously to learn about our setting in Florida. Well, I've got a long title. Let me narrow it down to, for you just a little bit, can I? Living white. That's the, that's the living beyond white, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, is what I'm talking about today. This is my family, uh, my wife there by me, and this is our youngest daughter standing next to my wife, and this is my son-in-law and uh, daughter-in-law. And um, uh, this is our new grandbaby. Uh, Ooze and Oz are inappropriate. <laughs> and uh, we have been so blessed by our children. Um, I had, our kids were probably about 14 or 15, and one of my African-American preacher friends said to me, have you had the talk with your daughters? And of course, you know what I'm thinking, the sex talk, you know? I said, oh yeah, we talked about that a long time ago. He said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when they get stopped by the police, have you had that talk with them? And I thought, what, what are you talking about? And so he went through the whole nine yards, we'll talk about it a little bit today, about what you can expect if you're a person of color and you have that experience. Uh, I wanna show you this video just briefly here, short video. Our nation, one of the shameful tragedies at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hours in Christian America. Uh, I definitely think the Christian church should be integrated, and any church that uh, stands against integration and that has a segregated body is standing against the spirit and the teachings of Jesus Christ, and it fails to be a true witness. Uh, but this is something that the church will have to do itself. I don't think church integration will come through uh, legal processes. Okay, so you get an idea there. Uh, you know, it's not going to come through legal processes is what the Dr. King says. I think it's one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the shameful tragedies, that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hours in Christian America. I am amazed. I mean, we have diversity in our church, not that we always practice what we look like, but we have diversity in our church. But, uh, you know, I travel around the country a bit, and I'm amazed that there are not more churches that are like us, that re are reflective of us. But they're not. Uh, I definitely think that the Christian church... Uh, should be integrated in any church that's any church that stands against integration that has a segregated body is standing against the spirit and the teaching of Jesus Christ. We're going to develop that more. Come on in, come on in. There's seats up front if you want to sit. Come on, come on in. And it fails to be a true witness. But this is something that the church will have to do. I don't think church integration will come through the legal process. Well, you know what the legal processes have done in our country. I work in a school one day a week as a volunteer. That school is far more reflective of the community than most all of our churches are. Um, well, let me tell you about another interesting character that I've met along the way here. And I'm going to let you hear just a little bit of his story, the first part of it. But the bottom line is, this is a gentleman that decided, I'm going to spend time, he's an African-American gentleman, I'm going to spend time in the whitest counties in America year 27,000 mile journey to learn where why and how white people are fleeing but I didn't expect to have so much fun on my journey I didn't expect to learn so much about myself I 
sorry, my fault. I started you off the wrong spot. <laughs> Imagine a place where your neighbors greet your children by name. A place with splendid vistas. A place where you can drive just 20 minutes and put your sailboat on the water. It's a seductive place, isn't it? I don't live there. <laughs> but I did journey on a 27,000 mile trip for two years to the fastest growing and whitest counties in America. What is a Whiteopia? I define Whiteopia in three ways. First, Whiteopia has posted at least 6% population growth since 2000. Secondly, the majority of that growth comes from white migrants. And third, the Whiteopia has an ineffable charm, a pleasant look and feel, a je ne sais quoi. <laughs> to learn how and why Whiteopias are ticking, I immersed myself for several months apiece in three of them. First, St. George, Utah. Second, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And third, Forsyth County, Georgia. Okay, now I want to move down and show you what he learned. I'm going to skip through, okay, and show you uh, what he has to say about what he learned on this journey. Are affable and kind. Interpersonal race relations how we treat each other as human beings is vastly better than in my parents' generation. Can you imagine me going to Whiteopia 40 years ago? What a journey that would have been. And yet some things haven't changed. America is as residentially and educationally segregated today as it was in 1970. As Americans, we often find ways to cook for each other, to dance with each other, to host with each other, but why can't that translate into how we treat each other as communities? It's a devastating irony, how we have gone forward as individuals and backwards as communities. That's, uh, that's quite, a, uh, quite a statement there. Uh, he says, interpersonal race relations, how we treat each other as human beings is vastly better than my parents' generation. I would agree with that statement. <coughs> Yet some things haven't changed. America is as residentially and as educationally segregated today as it was in 1970. As Americans, we often find ways to cook for each other, dance with each other, host with each other, but why can't that translate in how we treat each other as communities? It's a devastating irony how forward we've gone as individuals but we have regressed as communities. Now think about that for just a moment. That, my brothers and sisters, is why I want to talk to you today. First of all, I want to share with you five reasons why the church needs diversity. Number one, it's biblically mandated. God says to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, for over 500 years, there's a part of the world that has decided that some of those families don't belong, okay? Or they've been marginalized or mistreated. 
Isaiah says, I'll give you as a light to the goyim, to the nations, to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And then very convictingly, when Jesus told His disciples to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Are you familiar with the word ethnos, ethnic? Well, that's the word in Matthew. When Jesus says go to all nations, He says go to all ethne, which is plural for nations. He meant every people group. He didn't just mean one people group. He didn't just mean white people. He didn't just mean Filipinos. He didn't just mean African Americans and so forth. He meant all nations. Remember in Acts as we unfold the teaching of the gospel story, how that there were these people gathered from nations all over the world that spoke all sorts of languages. Well, again, they were there from every nation, from every ethnic group, from every representation of people across. Even among the Jews, there was a wide diversity of people that existed in that body. God declares to us, He commands us to be a people that are integrated. Monoracial churches in my opinion, are the easy way out. What did Jesus say to His disciples? I give you a new commandment so that you may love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. But by this command, people will, everybody will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, look at that for just a minute. Was that really a new commandment? I mean, didn't God tell Israel to love each other? Didn't God tell Israel to love other people? Have you thought about the makeup of the disciples? John, Simon, Peter, and James, and John, and Andrew were all fishermen. You know, so they were kind of people that may have not appreciated what the Romans were doing, but yet they had their own business. They were thriving. They were doing okay. Uh, then you have Matthew, uh, who's a tax collector. He had kind of thrown himself in with the Romans. He was doing what the Romans did, and he was making a little money on the side off of it, probably. And then you have Simon the Zealot. He was an active part of a movement that was trying to remove the Romans from power. So imagine now, and Judas, well, I don't know. We speculate that he was a well-educated guy that had a propensity for wanting to collect money for himself. We don't know for sure. But here's all these men that had nothing really to do with each other. So when Jesus is talking back in this text, he's not talking to everybody at that moment. He's talking to his disciples specifically to say, I'm giving you a new commandment, you as a group of disciples. You have to learn to get along together. You have to be a, a body that's, that's united in the way you're going to reach the world. And later on, this becomes an issue and it becomes a problem as the disciples go out and become leaders in that early church following movement. Uh, another reason that uh, churches need diversity is cross-race relationships enrich our lives. They add value. I can't tell you, I, I'm not going to tell you about all of these, but I've had some wonderful conversations with people from other groups in our church that are not white. And uh, it's been a blessing, but it's also just just put a weight on my heart. I just can't imagine. I talked to one of our brothers. He, you know, I always thought, I, I, he just, he's real quiet. And I thought, you know, I wonder if he's struggling with something in his life that's happened. Well, he was, but it wasn't currently what's happening. It's what has happened to him his whole life. The way he was treated as a black man in America growing up. And he said, you know, I joined the military. I thought it would be better, and it really wasn't much better, you know, in the military than it was in society. 
And to hear a lady that I resonate with a lot because I grew up on a farm. I grew up in a time, as I said, a racist kind of society time. And there were African-Americans that worked on my grandfather's farm. And I, I know what that was like. But she had the same experience from a whole different perspective, right? So sitting down with her and listening to her story will just tear your heart out. You know, the things that she has been through. Well, we'll talk more about conversations in a minute. But imagine how much less we would be if we did not, we were not inclusive and we were not diverse in our approach to life and we did not have all of these experiences brought together. Imagine what someone from that experience can teach someone that's been privileged their whole life. Imagine what we can help each other to learn, how the gifts that God has given all of us, many that have been suppressed over the years. And this is what Paul is talking about when he says, you know, the human body is made up of different parts and they all work together for one purpose. That's what God wants in His diverse family. He wants us to be working together for a common purpose. Second, uh, fourthly, segregation reinforces prejudice. Remember the uh, confrontation that Paul had with Simon? You know, uh, he was the kind of guy that I was when I was growing up. As long as I was with my own kind, you know, I behaved like my own kind. I told jokes. I, I made fun of people of other people groups and all that. But when I was around with people that were diverse, I was Mr. Congeniality, right? Well, this is kind of like it was with Simon. He's Mr. Congeniality, you know, when everybody's together. But then when the Jews come in town, he goes off away from the, 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 the diverse group and he joins together with people of his own kind and he starts sharing the stories and the, the, uh, the generalities about these other group of people. And Paul says, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is not right. And so he said, I had to confront him, you know. <coughs> he says, if you, though a Jew, look like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles? It wasn't just that Peter was being a racist. It was that Peter was also trying to have this dual way of living and he's trying to force the people that were not like him to be like him. And that's a challenge we've had in our church. Even though we may look diverse, is that living out that diversity becomes a challenge, you know. We, we're really just, most of our time, we've been just a white church that looks different than a white church. You know, that's, that's really what it's been. Diversity models unity. I mean, the Bible still says, doesn't it, that there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. In Colossians, there's a really convicting sort of text. As Paul is giving information to these people that grew up in the Greek culture, many of them were a part of the unions, which were called guilds, Greek guilds in their day and time. And of course, they worshipped the emperor, they worshipped other gods, and there was a challenge for them to decide, am I going to be faithful to Jesus? Am I going to be faithful to God? Or am I going to submit to the guilds, make a lot of money, do well in society? What, how am I going to make this decision? And so Paul says here, in all these practices that you've had in the past, the way you've lived in the past, you're now been recreated in the image of your Creator. And he says, this is the NRSV, in that renewal, once you've been renewed and put into the image of the Creator, the way the Creator looks at the world is he doesn't look at it the way we do. He looks at it as no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Well, this is our family, our church family. Uh, a few pictures from our church family. You can see we have some diversity in our church family. But even looking at that, we still struggle to live in community. Uh, we've been looking for a new staff member, and I, I noticed as we're sitting there around tables, we're still sitting segregated by the tables, right? We're, we're not sitting together. 
And, and I said, I'm not going, I don't want this to happen. So I go over and sit down at the table, a different table, you know, and start having conversations. But this is typically the way it works. Even in an environment, school, church, wherever, where we have diversity, we don't really have community. And that's the challenge that we face, my brother and sister. And that's why there's some of the, the hate and the, the, the just atrocious behavior that we have on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else is because we just don't understand each other and we're not trying very hard, I'm afraid. We're a diverse community struggled, struggling to live beyond uh, white. Well, at the heart of our problem is living within a long history of white privilege in our communities and in our churches. And I'll have this to say that when white privilege is discussed, especially among white people like me, there's a lot of pushback, you know. I remember the first time that I brought up white privilege in a minister's group and everybody said, well, I'm not privileged. You know, I'm not wealthy. I don't have any money, you know. Or, or maybe the, they're uncomfortable because the word white is not a way that we're used to being defined, okay. We don't define ourselves by using that term, by our race. And when somebody else seeks to define us by our race, we become uncomfortable. <coughs> also, the word privilege, especially for poor and rural white people, sounds like a word that doesn't belong to them. They think, well, you know, it suggests that we've never struggled or we've never had our own issues. We're, that's not at all what we're talking about when we talk about white privilege. Here's a definition that I've come to use that I think is appropriate. Francis E. Kendall in his classic work, Diversity in the Classroom and Understanding White Privilege, says, having greater access to power and resources than people of color in the same situation do. That's what white privilege is. Now let me, let me see if I can give you a thought question that will clarify that. What, think about this right now yourself. What dimension of your life, or what negative dimension of your life is due to the color of your skin? What negative impacts have you had in your life due to the color of your skin? Now, some of us in this room could make a really long list. Some of us right now are thinking, what are you talking about? Right? I don't even understand what you're talking about. I can't. Having greater access to power. And if you would like this presentation, I'll be glad to email it to you. Okay? You can have the whole thing. So if you're, you're worried about getting all the notes, I'm glad to give it to you. I'll share everything I have. There's nothing unique or, or original here, so, so to speak. So what negative dimension? Let, let me clarify. When you stop by the police, will the outcome of that stop be affected by the color of your skin? When you're shopping, how will your presence in the store or the service you received be affected by the color of your skin? When you're eating at a restaurant, how will the service that you receive be affected by the color of your, friend, your skin. I had a conversation with one of our members the other day that went to a local restaurant and, uh, and all that. And, and the, when they sat down, we said, we knew as soon as we sat down, we're wasting our time here. We might as well get up and leave, you know? And that's sad. This is 2019, right? By my count. If you're taking out a loan to buy a house, how will the process be affected by the color of your skin? Did you know that even in 2019 America, that some of the residual effect of 500 years of marginalization and slavery has put people in a very great uh, disadvantage financially? I grew up on a farm, six acre farm. My grandfather had 100 acres. When my grandfather and my parents passed on, we inherited that. Well, that's wealth that you're inheriting. 
which you're going to then turn around and use in other ways. People that worked on my grandfather's farm that lived over across the track, so to speak, they had a marginal piece of property, very little money. When they passed, they might not have even passed anything along to their children. Now take that over four or five hundred years or longer, even times when people didn't own property that were people of color, that takes its huge impact psychologically and otherwise in America. And, but we can't see it. We don't see it until maybe we go and think about what it means to be a person of color buying a house. If you're job searching or seeking a promotion, how will the result be affected by the color of your skin? I did not want to weigh you down with statistics, but there have been so many studies done where people of color that have the same qualifications, the same background and training, everything else compared to those who are white in their background and training in the job market, there is a huge disparity that still exists because of this question I'm asking you. If you're arrested as a suspect in a crime, how will the outcome be affected by the color of your skin? Do you know the name Barry Stevenson? If you don't, I hope you'll go and look it up. Barry Stevenson has the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, he has been working hard to try to get people that were falsely put in prison or accused, many of them on death row, out of prison. He's been successful in some cases, but in other cases, even though the evidence was seen to be clear and that there was no guilt, the person still was put to death because of what they supposedly did. There is a huge disparity in this whole field. So he, he often talks about changing our narrative, changing the story about the way we think of people and how we look at things. It's quite convicting. <coughs> if you're seeking to become a U.S. citizen, how will the process be affected by the color of your skin? The color of my skin, white, ensures that I will not face the same limitations that are imposed on my African-American and Hispanic neighbors. Sad truth, but it is true. So my dream, my hope for my church family, the Melbourne Church family, is that we would become a church of the nations. I, I tell you, when I get up on a Sunday morning, it gives me a lot of pleasure to see people sitting in the pews that are not like me, right? It gives me a great deal of pleasure, and I, and I can only think that this is the way God wants it. But it just breaks my heart to see that we're not doing it, though. We, we're not like this across the country, across the world, you know. We travel to Israel. We're going back in September. Come join us. Uh, uh, Jeff Brown this year is going with us, and it's going to be a great trip. Um, and there is a church in Jerusalem that's called the Church of the Nations. There are all kinds of churches in Israel. If you go there, anything that's happened in the Bible, there's almost a church built over it where they think it happened, okay? So it's hard to see. It's hard to see the original sites because of the churches. Well, the one church that I really like is the church of the... It's right by what they think is Gethsemane, right on the Mount of Olives. So it's right there. There's a huge Jewish cemetery over to one direction from the church there. But this church, you know, just in its imagery and in just every way, it just draws me in when I'm there. You know, and I've taken all kinds of pictures of it. And I thought, you know, that's exactly what we should name all of our churches. Because if we're going to be inviting, not only we have to look inviting, we have to have a way in our name and everything else that says to people, you're welcome here. One of the things that uh, this will tell you about my past, um, when we adopted our first daughter, I can tell you, just to honestly tell all of you, that I didn't want to adopt somebody that didn't look like me, okay? I was just very hesitant. My wife was all in. Uh, so we had a, some friends of ours out in Texas. Uh, he had worked for Abilene Christian. They, they were really good friends. And they had adopted a little girl that had, uh, her mother had been a, 
a crack addict, and she had been malnourished, and they adopted her, okay, and, and, and just uh, took her in like their own children. And so we chatted with them, and, and, uh, and basically they told us, look, this is what God wants, okay? You're at this place for a reason. God wants this to happen. So fast forward a few years, and, and we're in church, and you know, our church was all white when I came to Florida, and then I noticed that we're starting to have quite a few people from other people groups in our church, you know, and I'm talking to one of our African-American ladies one, one Sunday, and I'm just talking about this conversation, and said, you know, I'm really happy it's happening, I'm just not sure what's going on. She said, take a look at your own family. When people come here, they know it's a safe place. Well, that's a tough thing. That's not happening a lot of places in the world. So our children have blessed us beyond our imagination. Uh, well, what, I'm get, what I want to take this now is I want to talk about kingdom vision, okay? If we're going to go forward, if we're going to move to a different place, we've got to have some vision that's above the horizon. That's more than just what we have come to in conclusion on our own. As Martin Luther King said, it's not going to be the governing authorities that are going to make this happen. It's going to have to happen through you and I, the people in this audience right here today. It's going to have to happen through us. That's how it's going to have to occur. Um, I really appreciate the work that uh, Bobby uh, Valentine and John Marquix have done on connecting the prophetic vision with the gospel vision. In the book of Matthew, when Jesus talks about bringing people in this text we looked at earlier, this text of all nations together, when Paul talked about over in Colossians, in this new renewal, this cre new creation that God has made you into, He wants it to be different. He wants it to be not like the world. He wants you to be anti-world. He wants you to be a representation of His entire creation, the way He has made it. As, as John Perkins says, we're all one blood. We should be in one family. Uh, so in Ephesians, it's where I want to take this prophetic vision. If you look, if you were in uh, the, the pre-conference with Jerry Taylor mm -hmm. and uh, Don McLaughlin, you've seen some of this <coughs> already. But, uh, and Don and I have talked about it a few times. Uh, remember that formerly, you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those that were called the circumcision. Now, now get this, this is, so, this is not the same, but it's similar to what white people in America and in South America did to people of color throughout this 500-year period is that they looked at themselves and they held their heads high because we are the circumcised. They're the uncircumcised. They're less than human. They're not the same educated people. And before you go uh, glamorizing our past and what Abraham Lincoln and people like that did, you better go read some of what they had to say about people of color in their assessment. It's not what you might think. So all of that has happened in our world too. We've had a way of looking down on other people. This is the way the Jews were. They looked down on the Gentiles and they said, if you want to be one of us, you've got to look like us. Okay? Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. Jerry Taylor calls this strangers in a strange land. His testimony is, is really powerful because he talks about being a young man. He said, I had a way in the white school I attended of being Mr. Congeniality, but on the inside I was a burning inferno because of the way I was being treated as a person of color. Being a stranger in a strange land is not a happy experience, is it? 
I've been to some different parts of the world. I've been in places where I w- didn't know if I was completely safe. And when you somebody when you're in that situation and somebody calls out your name, it's like it gives you a whole new feeling, right? It just makes you feel so good. Somebody here knows me, so I'm I'm going to be safe. I'm going to be all right. Somebody's here with me. But these people, these uncircumcised Gentiles, they were out there. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So during the civil rights era, this verse, these verses, this theme has far more meaning to people who have been marginalized than it does to people who have lived privileged all of their life. You know, I grew up in a church. If you grew up in a church, you were somewhat privileged because you had a perspective that not everybody in the world gets. I find that the rankest drug addicts that come to know Jesus have a greater appreciation for where they are than people that have lived in churches their whole life. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying to these Gentiles, they knew what it was like to be marginalized. They, they said, now you are, because of the blood of Christ, brought near. For He Himself is our peace, who has noticed made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in His flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two and making peace and in one body to bring both of these groups of people in a reconciled nature to God through the cross and put to death the hostility. When's the last time you've heard a sermon on that topic in relationship to race relations in your church? He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. There is no one, there is no one anywhere on this planet that is greater thought of than another person is. God sees us as His children, His creation. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners. You're no longer strangers in a strange land. But fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ Himself as the chief cornerstone in Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Every nation of people, every ethnic group brought into the body of Christ. And you know, this is directly connecting to the prophetic vision of the Old Testament where God said, you'll be a light to the Gentiles. Here we are as a temple, so to speak, a spiritual temple. The Spirit of God is living in us. And here we are, representative of our cultures, wherever we are, brought together in that body of Christ, living in love, showing love to each other, and showing the world who we are. Is that an example that can go unnoticed, is what I would ask you. Is there anywhere in the world that if people come together like that, that they can't be a great example? Um, When we travel to Israel, I have learned that the Palestinian people have had an experience that's somewhat similar to uh, the African-American people in our country. They have been marginalized as well. My friend told me that when the Jewish people took over the state of Israel in the 60s, that they pushed all of the Palestinians out of the, out of the nation of Israel. And he said about a year later, they invited them all back. You know why? No people in the Jewish people would do the menial jobs that the Palestinians were doing in service. And so now even today, if you go to Israel, you go to a hotel, the person waiting on you in a hotel will not be Jewish, they'll be Palestinian. You know, that's the way it is. Uh, it was great to hear Mike, my friend Mike, that, that this guide over there, 
and he has a Jewish friend named David, and they came on our bus one day and told their testimony about how the how they had really, you know, had hatred for each other's background and ethnicity, and they had come to be friends and had come to they had differences still they had different ideas, but they had come to love each other, and the day they did that was just there's not a dry in the whole bus, okay. Because that's what God intends, us to come together in our differences, in our cultures, not blind to culture, not blind to who we are, celebrating who we are in that one family together, the family of God. So here's the mystery. In the Bible, you know, in Paul, he always talks about this mystery. What is the mystery? That Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ through the gospel. When I was growing up, you know what the gospel was? You do. You come to know Christ, you're baptized into Christ so that you can be saved and so that you can get to heaven. Now that's why you did it. It was individual to the max. But in Scripture, salvation is a community thing. It's a thing that everybody is involved in. So, you know, when we have baptism in our church, we bring our children's church out, we open up the doors, we get the kids to sit out there. We want everybody to be a part because this is a celebration of community. This is a community thing. And when that person who's going in the water comes out, God says, just like He did for Jesus, when Jesus came out of the water, you're my son, you're my daughter. And so now we welcome them into this community of people. So it's not just coming to be a Christian, it's coming to live in a community. Remember God said, I died Christ came, the wall was broken down, so you can live in community. The gospel is not just about being saved individually by grace through faith and one day going to heaven. It's about living in the kingdom in the here and now. And if we're living in the kingdom in the here and now with each other and in our diversity, look at what example that's going to be uh, to the world. So this is Paul's link to the prophetic vision. Look at Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. Talking about Jesus. I have put my spirit on him. He'll bring justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. Here is a Jesus that knows the hearts of people and he is going to love everybody no matter where they're from, who they are, what they look like, what their culture is. And a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. It is the quiet, humble spirits in our world that are able to bring about tremendous change. He will not grow faint or be crushed until He has established justice in the earth and the coastlines wait for His teaching. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and earth and stretched them out, who spread out the earth, who comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it, upon it and spirit to the people who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you to righteousness. I've taken you by the hand and kept you. I've given you as a covenant to the people and a light to the goyim, the nations. That is what ultimately Israel is going to be. But can you see the blindness of people by the days we get to Jesus? You have the Mishnah, you have the Talmud. You go to Israel today, you go to the Western Wall, you go into the synagogue. There are hundreds of books in the synagogue around the walls, all in Hebrew, and they are either prayer books or they interpretations of the laws of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And so by the time you get to Jesus' day, you have this vast interpretation of the way things ought to be. And one of the things that's developed is we have ours, and the only way you're going to have ours with us is you're going to do and be like us. We don't want any Samaritans. We don't want any of these other people being a part of who we are. And so we avoid them like the plague. 
We push them aside. We marginalize them. But God says that the prophetic vision is that Jesus came not just to save you. He came to save the community so that we can be a community of people uh, together. Well, remember the story of Jesus when He went to the temple? He goes there and there's this man, Simon, that's at at the temple. And this man was very righteous. He was devout. And he was looking forward to the consolation of Israel. That's the prophetic vision. He was looking forward to what the prophets had said about Israel being you know, comforted, Israel being blessed, Israel's Messiah coming to bless them. And the Holy Spirit rests on this man. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he saw this one that's bringing justice, freedom for the prisoners, relief for the oppressed, justice for the nations. And here he is, guided by the Spirit. He comes into the temple, and when Joseph and Mary bring Jesus in to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon takes him in his arms and he prays God saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the Gentiles, the Goyim, the nations, same word that's in Matthew 28, and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon is connecting the prophetic vision of the Hebrew Bible to the gospel that Jesus is bringing into the world. Well, if only we could theorize like we have, right? You know, uh, one person said, oh, to live above with the saints that we love, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, that's another story. (laughs) Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? When we leave here is the problem. We can sit here, we can praise God, we can say, amen, brothers, I I love what you're saying. But where, where it all comes together is out there. So let me tell you one thing I would really encourage you to do when you go back to your churches. I don't know what your churches look like, but if your churches look like ours or you have anyone in your church that looks different from what you look or comes from a different background or culture, I would encourage you to seek out a friendship, to seek out a time with that person, talk to them, find out where they're coming from, what their experiences have been. Maybe use some of the things we've said today as a starting point for a conversation, you know. Uh, I can tell you if you talk to any person of color about what was it like when you were growing up, you're going to have any trouble having a a conversation, okay? Not going to have any trouble having a conversation. Now, I'm not saying somebody's a total stranger. I'm talking about somebody that you know, okay? Somebody that's in your church or somebody that you have some relationship with. This will make a difference. The way forward is what we're talking about here. Uh, Let me show you a short video here if I can get over to it. Yeah, I grew up in those days. Of course, when we would go down the streets of our little town, if a white woman and a man was coming in front of us, we were supposed to step off the sidewalk and let them get by. Uh, Separate everything. Separate waiting room for black and white. And they had a white and women room and a men room, but there was just one room for us and it was in the back and was always dirty couldn't sit down in the front of a restaurant and eat well my mother died when i was seven months old my father couldn't read or write i'm a third grade dropout uh my brother was killed by the policeman when i was a boy 
and, and all of those horrible things. When I was being tortured in the Brandon jail is when I saw the absolute necessity for reconciliation. I saw the depths of racism. What was significant about that in my healing, in the hospital after that, it, it was those white people who I didn't really want around me, but I was forced to be there because they were the doctors and the nurses, and they continued to love me. They become the one that washed out my wound and we begin to heal each other. And that's when I said, Lord, I want to preach a gospel that can reconcile black, white, Jews and Gentiles together in one body. If it's a broken relationship, we got to get together, we got to work together, we got to stay together. And, and that's what reconciliation would look like. Well, something to think about. If you don't know John Perkins, I have to say that I love that man. Uh, Mark Smith sitting back here and I, we were at a conference one year, and he was speaking at that conference. You remember that, Mark? And uh, he was just real frail then. He was kind of easing up on the stage. I thought, man, this man will never be able to say a word, you know? And boy, when he took his hat off and started talking, it was like Jesus himself speaking. I'm telling you, <laughs> he, he's a wonderful man. And he has had such horrendous experiences in his life it was not there's no place it was worse in the 60s and 70s in mississippi okay and he had a really awful experience there and actually he escaped and, let, and went to california he said i'm late when his brother got killed by the police he left and went to california when he was in california his son lived out there and he got him to go to church and in a bible study he heard some of these verses that we read from ephesians about reconciliation about the dividing wall of hostility became a believer and he said, I can't stay in California. I got to go back to Mississippi. So what does he do? He goes back to Mississippi and he almost gets beaten half to death in a jail. Okay? And that's that story he's telling about being in the hospital with the white people waiting on him. Terrible experience. But his goal in life is, like he said, to get people together, right? We got to work together. We got to get together. We got to do things together. And they are actually revitalizing communities all over our country and encouraging people of all ethnic backgrounds to come and live together in community. What uh, Rich Benjamin talked about is sad. People are running away, right? They're going into their own little cubby holes, their own little communities, and so we don't live in community together anymore, you know? I can't tell you, we had several people, we lived in a very diverse neighborhood when our kids were growing up and, and all that, and people would ask us about, was it safe to live in our neighborhood? Well, that was a totally racial statement. We live in one of the safest neighborhoods in our community, you know. We loved our neighbors. Our neighbors are great people. They would do anything for us. We would do anything for them. So it was sad to see people that had such a, 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 a stilted viewpoint of the way the world is. But John Perkins is a man you need to get to know. You need to read his, any book he's written. It's fantastic. And I would also say with that, I would recommend... A doctor, he's deceased now, but his name is James Cone. Do you know James Cone, the name? He wrote The Cross, the, the Cross and the Lynching Tree. That is a book that will change the way you look at the world, okay? It'll change, it'll change your life, I think. So those two, two people, John Perkins and, and, and doc, both Dr. James, James Perkins and Dr. Cone, are both great people I would recommend to you for, in this area. We have to get together, work together, and stay together. That's Dr. Perkins' comment. Well, I mentioned Barry Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative. It's another name, another person I hope you'll get to know. 
but his thing, his big thing is what he calls proximity. He talked about working with death row inmates and he said, you know, I would get these cases, you know, of these death row inmates. And I mean, it's like pages and pages. He said, I would read through that, read through that. And he'd think, ah, I don't know, not much of a case, or this is a good case, or this might be a case. But he said, when I went down to the prison, went to death row, and sat across from that person and heard their story, that changed my perspective completely. So yeah, you can read about civil rights. You can read books. You can, you can, you can hear talks like this. But until you sit down across from another person and talk to them personally, you're never going to know what it's like. You're never going to understand and know the experiences of people that are in those uh, situations. So proximity, closeness, table time, that's a very important thing. So I'll leave you with this. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful for your day, thankful for these people that have kindly come today, and I hope, Lord, that we might hear your voice, not my voice, but we might hear your voice that loved the whole world and gave Jesus, that every single one of us might be in community together, be saved, live in community, and, and be an example to the world of what love can really show. Bless us this day, give us your peace, and we thank you for your goodness and for your love. We pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit who lives with you, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Good to see you all. God bless your day. <coughs>